Please be seated, take your Bibles, and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Our next sermon and passages that make our pastor uncomfortable to preach, but he's going to preach anyways. This is week number four in a row of that series, if you've been following along. I'm just being silly, obviously. Chapter 19, we're going to do something a little bit different in terms of how I do this. And rather than um, kind of being super duper structured with how I've built the sermon on this one, uh, I'm actually going to do just a little bit more of a commentary style on this one and kind of comment as we go along uh, as there's a lot going on in the passage. And I I don't want to miss anything uh, as we get into it. This is God's word starting in Matthew 19 verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, "Uh, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be pleased to work. Give understanding, give belief, and use your word, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I mentioned it with the sacraments, but as humans, we're creatures that I think most of us tend to work best when cause and effect are clearly defined. Where we do a thing and we immediately receive the consequences for a thing. They tend to work best for us because that's when we're like, hey, by the way, when I do this, it doesn't work well for me. It feels bad, so I'm not going to do that anymore. 
The areas where we tend to not do quite so well are the areas where cause and effect get separated by a long distance. And we tend to be those that that don't pay attention or we forget or we think it's never going to happen to us or it's never going to be a big deal. If you don't know what I mean, think about any kind of real conversation about CPR. CPR is one of those things that is a really useful tool to have. It's really good to know uh, how to help resuscitate somebody who's uh, perhaps having a heart attack or not breathing or things of the sort. But it's really difficult to teach that correctly. Because the average person that's listening is listening in some fashion going, I'm probably never ever going to need this. And the people that have needed it in the past it's most likely so emotionally raw, they don't really like talking about it. I mean, it's a really profound thing to go mouth-to-mouth with a person that dies in your arms. You don't forget that. One of my dear friends had that happen to them. He still doesn't talk about it. It's hard to convey that. Another example, perhaps, is any legitimate conversation about insurance. <laughs> Ugh, I'm already out, right? I'm not interested at all. But insurance is really an exercise in math helping connect cause and effect, preparing for something that's going to happen perhaps later down the road to make sure that I'm covered. I mean, I'm, I'm never going to have my pipes leak repeatedly in my house and flood my house twice and have to gut every room but the master bedroom. That's never going to happen to me until that happened to me two years ago, three years ago. I mean, it's never going to happen in, until it does. We tend to do well with the Bible passages that are immediate, where it's like, oh, I like this one. It tells me how I can make it through today. Yay! This is one of the ones that encourages me and, and, or challenges my mind, or, ooh, I'd never thought about Jesus in such a way. That's not the passage we're in today. And the passage that we're in today is in one of those passages that, much like, much like CPR, Lord willing, you never have to use but you need to know. Lord willing, you never have to use this, but you need to know it because it's God's design for how men and women, boys and girls, are designed to operate. And even if you don't want to admit it, you need to know. Further, you need to know because of the culture in which we live. Where marriages outside the church are more likely to end in divorce than they are to end in Uh, With sticking it out, marriages inside the church, that's not true. The divorce rate is much, much lower in the evangelical church, but it's still far higher than we would like. Readily acknowledge that this is one of those passages that's really hard for pastors to try to preach today because such a substantial portion of any PCA congregation is most likely comprised of those that have divorce in their past. Further, we live in a world in which uh, divorce is um, thought of so incorrectly, right? where we have so much kind of dominating our thinking, my own personal happiness, my own hopes, dreams, and visions, and have this kind of looming specter in the background of irreconcilable differences. And we get to Matthew chapter 19, and I mean, even without me explaining it, you already know, that's not really Jesus' view. 
His view, again, much like CPR, is extremely important for us to know, uh, but perhaps a bit inconvenient for us to learn. Uh, He, again, verses 1 and 2, changes location in his ministry. That's not what we're going to focus on today. Verse 3, the Pharisees come up to him, and they uh, come up to him with a trap. It's a... ESV says it tested him, tempted him. This is a trap, a full-blown, 100% unadulterated trap. They are trying to trick Jesus into giving away more than what he wants to give away. They are asking him specifically, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And there's reason for this because the culture in which Jesus is ministering, weirdly enough, was not that different from our culture today. It was just one-sided. Ladies, sorry, y'all were stuck. Uh, Unless you had proof of adultery, you were stuck in a marriage forever and ever. Amen. Men, on the other hand, in Jewish culture, eh, it was a little different story. There were two schools of thought between the various uh, kind of rabbinical schools, but uh, one of them held a view slightly looser than Jesus. The other was grossly looser, like to the point where if you burned your husband's food three times, he could divorce you for that, and like credibly so, Uh, which some of you, that'd be a hard time for you, right? I mean, I can't say anything because I'd poison you trying to boil water, so it's not really fair for me to make any condemnation at all. So their, their question here is not an innocent question. Their question here is not a fact-finding question. It's not a trip to Wikipedia to see what the internet says. This question is a trap designed to get Jesus to commit to an answer. They have a sneaking suspicion, I suspect, that he's likely to commit to the narrower answer, uh, and also knowing that the world in which he's ministering, uh, the, the king of this region is kind of a known adulterer. In fact, actually having shortly before this at some point uh, beheaded a man for calling him on his adultery, divorced, and multiple marriages, uh, they're trying to get Jesus to commit to the same. It is 100% an effort to get Jesus gone from the social and public sphere. Their mistake, though, is by thinking a simple question is going to undo Jesus. The smartest human that's ever lived knows the Bible better than any human that's ever lived, and he wrecks them, and wrecks them hard. His response is devastating. And interestingly, again, for those of us reading in the English, uh, here they have a conversation entirely uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, And it's very, very clever, and it's very, very precise. Jesus answers them, is it lawful to divorce uh, your wife for any cause? Well, no. No. And gives a very specific answer, and I'm just kind of thinking generically, the big picture point, and I'm not really doing points, but big picture point here, is that God is severely hostile to, toward divorce. And when I say that, I, that is like a gross understatement. God is severely hostile to divorce. His answer is to go back to Genesis. It's, in fact, actually to go back to Genesis prior to the fall, prior to sin entering the world, prior to anything evil uh, existing, perhaps aside from Satan himself and the fallen angels, and to answer with the nature of men and women, boys and girls. 
He asks them, don't you know? <laughs> don't have you read the Bible? Don't you know how people were created? God made people, male and female, male and female. He created them. Uh, paraphrasing parts of Genesis 1. What Jesus is drawing them back to is actually rerouting their thinking to think about marriage not from the perspective of its dissolution, not thinking about marriage from the perspective of its end, but thinking about marriage from the perspective of its beginning. How does marriage begin? Marriage begins when God created a man in his image. That man was designed to look and act similar to God himself. You think about it, it's an amazing thing. When when Adam is created and no one sinned, if you wanted to know what God looked like out of all of creation, all you had to do is go look and talk to Adam. And that would be the clearest portrait of what God is like. Adam's a man. Profound in his righteousness, profound in his gifting, profound in who he is and how he was made. The only thing good, or I'm sorry, the only thing not good about his situation is though he had all of the animals to keep him company, he didn't have a wife. Cool lesson there, right? Pet dogs and cats can't substitute for humans. Right? As much as I love to say that, right? We have our own little furry thing that lives in the house. They can't substitute for people. Whether you live alone or live with others, you need to be with humans. That's how God has designed you to be. You need to interact with other humans. You need to, to be in relationship with other humans. Because that's actually the heart of what the problem is with Adam. Adam was made perfect in goodness and greatness and grandeur, but he was made alone. He didn't have anyone just like him. He didn't, he didn't have a partner he had, he had lots of things, he had lots of animals, but he didn't have anyone that was equal to him in power and glory and goodness and truth. So the Lord puts him to sleep, takes a rib out of him and forms him a wife of his own substance. That's very significant, friends. That when he makes Eve, he makes Eve from the substance of Adam. She's, she's not made from the substance of the animals. She's not an animal. She's not made from just out of the air by the voice of God and uh, of a different category. She's not something completely different to Adam. No, she is made of Adam. They share the same essence, the same humanity. And in doing so, God then wakes Adam and unites them together. Adam, you needed a helper in order to fulfill the mission that I've given you. Your mission is to make more humans and to have those humans spread through the entire world and to take this holy temple of a garden, that's what the garden was, it was the temple of God, and to take this holy temple and to spread it around the entire world. Adam, you need to take this temple and cover the globe with everything and everyone that worships me. Friends, that's a big job that he couldn't do by himself. I mean, first off, he can't make kids by himself, much just deliver them. That would be really weird. He needs a partner. 
Someone who can help share the work. Someone who can make the work more fun. Someone who can be there in intimacy and encouragement. A teammate. Friends, that's what marriage is. That's what it's designed to be. It's one of the few things that's created prior to the fall that we know is a lasting institution, untouched from sin, prior to the curse of God. Marriage is designed to be teammates fulfilling God's call in your life. It's why it it receives such a special place of honor in the Scriptures. It's because in marriage, it's one of the very few arenas in life where you get to see the, the, the intimacy of the Trinity. Wait, what now? My pastor in college always used to call marriage, he called it a sermon in shoes. It's because every day you go about living out a sermon, and the sermon, that the, the primary note of the sermon that you're living out is that God has designed humans to be in relationship because God himself is in relationship. What's the best way for me to know what the relationship between God the Father and God the Spirit is? The closest thing I've been given is my spouse. God tailor-made her to help me understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Spirit. That's what marriage is designed to do. To show us inner Trinitarian intimacy. And you can understand that if that's what marriage is designed to be, it's it's designed to be a painting that shows us the character of God. It's a painting designed to show us the essence of God, to show us His very nature. You can understand He would probably not look very favorably on divorce. Because divorce at its core is is striking at, it's killing the intimacy that marriage is designed to promote. I know there's a lot of people in the room not married. I will get to you, I promise. Verse 4, have you not read from the very beginning God created man and woman, male and female, And he said, look, this relationship is designed to be between a man and his wife. There's no third party. Friends, that is an extremely bit of like good marriage counsel there from God. No third parties in the marriage. Right? Mom and dad don't come with you. They really don't. In-laws, they don't come with you. They sometimes might try. They don't. Right? Man and a woman. And I'll be clear. I acknowledge in our current culture, we, we're comfortable in our current moment in time calling uh, homosexual marriage marriage. It's not. It never has been. It never will be. Christian marriage, biblical marriage, the real definition of marriage is one man and one woman. No third party comes along. And in fact, the union between these two things, these two people is so close It's interesting, the way that God verbalizes it is they begin to share the same body. Now, obviously that refers in some fashion to sexual intimacy, but beyond that, it's referring to the emotional, the spiritual, the internal nature of how marriage works. You begin to share each other. 
The New Testament will pick it up and say, her body belongs to the husband, the husband's body belongs to the wife. You are one flesh. They're no longer two, but they're one. They're knit together. Because in that union, in that intimacy, God is teaching his people what he himself is like. What God has joined together, therefore let not man separate. We hear that said at, at weddings all the time, right? It's kind of one of those kind of closing words that's said in, in weddings, and I love that. We don't actually really pay attention to the word picture there. The word picture that Jesus is using kind of behind the scenes in the language is it'd be the equivalent of like tearing my leg off. Being drawn and quartered, you know, they used to do that in other parts of the world or in really nasty parts of history where they'd hook, you know, each arm to a horse and each leg to a horse and have the four horses go different directions and just pull you to pieces. That's the verbiage that Jesus is using. What God has put together as a person, two arms, two legs, one head, a person, don't tear it to pieces. Likewise, those two people that are united together in marriage have become one body. Don't tear that body apart as well. That's how God thinks about divorce. It's much closer to dismemberment. You can see a little bit why I'm nervous about this sermon, wouldn't you? Because we live in a world in which divorce is thrown out casually. No-fault divorce all over the place. You read the signs as you're driving around town. The various divorce lawyers and what they, they, they post up on there, right? We were riding just this week. Uh, Sean and Gloria and I were in, uh, life's too short, get a divorce. That's what the sign said. That was the billboard. Life's too short, get a divorce. (laughs) Life's too short, have your legs torn off. I don't think so. I'll pass on that, friend. Jesus' response to them, and they understand it. It's very much Old Testament language. Again, he's uh, paraphrasing uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Jesus' response to them is that God is profoundly hostile to divorce. It's not neutral. He's not slightly bothered by it. It's not annoying to him like that person that smacks their food all the time that just drives you a little crazy. He hates it with a perfectly holy loathing. He hates divorce. Jesus' answer is strong. In fact, it's so strong that you can probably imagine the, uh, the, the Pharisees being like, yeah, we got him, <laughs> right? And rather than him taking kind of some weasel answer in between, he, he's committed himself, ha <laughs> ha. And so they follow up with what they think is the, the trump card. They think they've got the ace of spades. Well, Jesus, haven't you read Deuteronomy 24, <laughs> right? Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Haven't you read that? Don't you know the Bible? Well, he's memorized it, friends. Of course he knows it. Why then did Moses uh, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? This is Deuteronomy 24. And prior to Deuteronomy 24, uh, divorce was unbelievably common in all parts of the ancient Near East. 
but it was done in a way that left women um, horribly exposed, left women um, completely uncovered, and left women um, just tragically open to abuse. You remember that in that culture, uh, the way that you were cared for when you aged was by having babies, uh, specifically by having sons. That's why sons were such a big deal. Is they were your nursing home. They were, were your retirement home. Uh, they were those that would care for you when you were aged. They were your source of income. They were your social security. They were everything. That's why you have such great pictures of Hannah and others just pouring out their souls before the Lord, saying, God, give me a son. It was a, a noble request. And the problem was the son stayed with the husband. And if the husband didn't like the wife, he could just chuck her off, and she had no recourse. And in fact, actually, if he didn't actually give her any kind of record of what he had done, she just basically could end up in a situation where she could end up being passed around town with no one to say that she couldn't be. God, in his infinite wisdom in Deuteronomy chapter 24, sets up a rule, a, a law in ancient Israel to say, you shall not treat women that way. They are not objects. They are not play toys. They are not things to be treated callously, to be passed around. Women are in God's image and must be treated with the dignity and the glory and the beauty that they demand. Not because they demand it, because God demands it for them. Deuteronomy 24 is a passage that's set up to tell, to teach God's people to care for your women. They are important in the kingdom of God. What the Pharisees are doing, though, is they're trying to catch Jesus in a little bit of a you know, catch-22. Hey, look, you said God hates divorce, but God already gave us rules for how to divorce. Which one is it? They're mishandling the scriptures, as they always do. But Jesus, which is it? You, you can't have both ways. Does God hate divorce, or does God uh, give us rules for divorce? And Jesus answers, it's both, friends. He hates divorce. He loathes it. He abhors it. He despises it. He, it is all of the things that are bad. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't set rules for how it happens. Moses did give rules for how to give a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24. And the reason for that, Jesus explains, was because of your hard hearts. <laughs> Because of your sin, I love that answer. It's your fault. And it literally is. Because the men of the Jews, uh, the men of the Jewish nation, uh, treated their women so badly, and the world around was even worse, that God gave rules and regulations to protect their wives from being used like a commodity. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Divorce was never designed. And when God made Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't have provisions for divorce prior to the fall. They were to be married for all eternity. doesn't work that way. Sin enters in, and because of your sin, God gives rules to, to minimize its effects. And then verse 9, Jesus drops the bomb on us. His policy for divorce, what is God's plan for how divorce works? What is God's rule for divorce? I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality 
and marries another, commits adultery. Boom. Using kind of modern language, that's a mic drop moment. Jesus explains to them what God's rules are for for divorce, and it's this. If you are in Christian marriage, you can never get out. I'm going to say that again. If you're in Christian marriage, you can never get out. You can't end your own marriage. If you're in Christian marriages, there are three ways your marriage ends. One, your spouse dies. Your marriage is over. You can't be united anymore. It's sad. It happens. Two, your spouse turns out to be an unbeliever. This is 1 Corinthians 7. If the unbeliever wishes to go, you let them. Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul's very clear. You don't get to decide to leave. They have to decide to leave. If a Christian finds out that they're married to the worst unbeliever in the history of the world, the Christian does not have the privilege of ending their marriage. The unbeliever can. The Christian cannot. Third way, and the one that Jesus talks about here, is adultery. If the other spouse commits adultery, then you may choose to leave, but you don't have to. In fact, actually, I'd encourage you to learn to forgive and work it out. But it's only if the other spouse commits adultery that you may then choose whether or not you wish to leave. You don't ever get to end your own marriage. There's a sense in which, and I'm I'm being a bit kind of rhetorical here, but there's a sense in which divorce doesn't exist for Christians. It doesn't. Because true biblical marriage cannot be dissolved on your own terms. And there's a sense in which it has to be dissolved by your spouse. They have to die. They have to be an unbeliever that wants to leave. They have to commit adultery. You can't get out. And if you were kind of thinking, well, Michael, that's a bit strong. That's exactly how the disciples understand it, which is why their question makes sense. Uh, Jesus, if you're telling the truth, I really don't think I want to be married. That's the heart of their question, right? If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to be married. Like if I have to make a decision that I'm stuck to for the rest of my life, it's better to be single. And you know what Jesus' response is? You got it, guys. You understand. That's exactly right. There are some that have been born deformed in their eunuchs. They're not able to marry to enjoy uh, the pleasures of marriage in that way. There are some that by nature of the community in which they live, in this case, they were emasculated, they were made eunuchs, they were um, you know, neutered in that sense. There are some, and not literally speaking here, making themselves a eunuch, there are some, because of wisdom or prudence, choose to stay single for life. And you know what? Jesus is commending them and saying, you know what? Those people are really wise. They understand. Paul's going to go a step stronger in 1 Corinthians again, where he's going to say, I wish more people were like me, single like I am. Because, and single friends, this is the key for you, your singleness is a gift for extended ministry. 
That, that is 100% the way you need to think about being single. Singleness is always a gift for extended ministry. Right? Single folks, you, you don't have to uh, worry about maintaining a home uh, with other bodies in the home and emotional re- you know, connections and, and commitments the same way that, that married folks do. Your singleness is a gift. The Lord may change that gift and call you to marriage later, but as long as you're single, it's God's gift to you for extended ministry. Jesus commends the disciples, guys, you figured it out. Marriage is really hard. And in fact, actually, it's slightly terrifying because it's a decision you cannot get out of. And I would be remiss, again, these are not the things I enjoy talking about, but I would be remiss if I didn't at least comment on the the remarriage element of verse 9. Anyone who divorces his wife, we would say for unbiblical grounds, and remarries, when they marry, that's adultery. Which is hard. Because this is a reality that the American church, we, just, we refuse to talk about. I mean, we don't talk about divorce as it is. It's poisoning the church from the inside out. We really don't talk about remarriage at all. And when we do, we talk about it from our own feelings perspective and not from what the Bible says. Remarriage after an unbiblical divorce is adultery. And friends, if we're going to hold this view, which is what Jesus is holding, generally a good idea to hold Jesus' view, This puts us in a really awkward situation as a church because it means that a lot of the Christians that we talk with and some folks perhaps even in this room we know are sinners. We might even go so far as to say we know they're adulterers. The good news I know, right? It shouldn't be a surprise to us that when we look around the church that we find people that have sinned, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us when we look around the church and we find people, ourselves included, that have big sins. In fact, it should worry us when we don't. It should absolutely terrify us when we, if we were to look around the church and see only good moral people. That's what the Pharisees looked like. It's not what the ministry of Jesus looked like. It should give us encouragement that we can look around the church and see people that have made a mess of their life at one point and the Lord is transforming. Because there's a reason why Matthew puts Matthew chapter 19 where he does. Matthew chapter 19 follows immediately on the heels of Matthew chapter 18, again, continuing the sermon series of sermons that makes Michael uncomfortable to preach. But what's just prior to this in the context? It's one of the most gripping, persuasive, passionate, and poignant pictures of forgiveness anywhere in the Bible. The parable of the unforgiving servant where the man is staring down uh, a debt that is 200,000 years of labor and the, the king just forgives him freely. 
This is the reality of divorce in the land today. It was a reality in divorce in the land back then is that this would have condemned a lot of people. In fact, actually would have condemned, I'm sure, a lot of the people that Jesus is talking to. There are going to be a lot of people that are sitting there listening to him, kind of twiddling their thumbs with shame. And I think it's so incredibly significant that the backdrop that Matthew is presenting this in is the forgiveness that only Jesus offers. So I'll make the point. Some of you in here, you made a mess of your life with divorce. The good news is, Jesus forgives. He went to the cross. He gave up his life freely. No one took it from him. So that your sins would be forgiven. Go and sin no more. And there's some of us in the room, that's not our story. We're not divorced. But I guarantee you, if you've been married for longer than about four days, you've said some pretty hateful things to your spouse. Maybe I'm just calling myself out, not you. Perhaps that's the case. The good news is, Jesus went to the cross to forgive sins, including the hateful ones and the hateful words that you've said to your spouse. Friends, confess your sin. Find forgiveness in Jesus. Go and sin no more. For those, some others in the room, perhaps you're not yet married. You wish to be. In fact, actually, you wish to be to the point that it's become a debilitating, overarching, dominating thing. We would call that an idol. Friends, the Lord knows your need. He made your frame. He knows your heart. He's given you your gifts and your idolatry. It's covered on the cross. Jesus died on the cross with you in mind so that your sins would be forgiven. Go and sin no more. Others, perhaps you're content in the station that God has placed you. Perhaps your sin is not one that deals with relationships of a sort, but instead you know that sin in your heart. You know that shame that just kind of percolates underneath. You know the topic that, mm, if Michael's preaching on that one, I might call in sick that day. Whatever that sin is, friends, confess it. Jesus took it to the cross. Go. And sin no more. You see, that's the backdrop for any conversation that we have to have about divorce, that we have to have about adultery, that we have to have about gossip, or jealousy, or gluttony, or theft, plagiarism, whatever it is. That's the backdrop the church has to have that conversation in, is that Jesus forgives your sins. Now that being said, I would perhaps offer just very briefly a couple of quick applications. 
There's also of great significance that chapter 19, the chapter or the sectional divorce, immediately follows some of the most emotionally demanding portions of Scripture dealing with us forgiving each other. The reality is Christian marriage, um, (laughs) it's far more fragile than a lot of people would like to admit. I mean, I recognize most of us kind of pretend like rough and tumble, like our marriages are strong and we can handle it. You forget I'm a marriage counselor. Like I literally talk to you behind the scenes, I know. Marriage is not nearly as durable as we like to admit. And if we were to think of our marriages like an engine, the the lubrication of the engine is the spirit of God providing forgiveness. We have to be those that cultivate a rich and robust forgiving spirit toward those we live with, those we work with, for you single folks, those that God has called you to minister with and to those sitting next to you. If we're going to be those kinds of people that, that live in a way that is different from the world, we have to have the forgiveness of Jesus in the back of our mind and then extend that freely to those around us. I will forgive you. It's one of the most marvelous things that we we think about in Christian marriage after the fall. There is no person that has sinned against me more than my spouse, perhaps my parents. But there is no person, I don't think, that sinned against me more than my spouse. And therefore, there's no person that I've had the privilege of showing the forgiveness of Christ than my spouse. And vice versa, right? There's no one I've sinned against more than my spouse and she's had the privilege of forgiving me. This is what it means to be a Christian is to take God's forgiveness and put it inside time and space and to forgive each other even when I really don't want to and it hurts my feelings. You see, that's the reality for Christians. There's no such thing as irreconcilable differences. There's forgiveness And there's one-sided forgiveness, but there's just forgiveness. Secondly, um, marriage is not something to be trifled with. I mean, that's the point the disciples come away with, right? If that's what marriage is, I'm not really sure I'm interested. Uh, The point there, perhaps, is perhaps all of us in the room might want to add this to our prayer life a little bit more, to pray for the marriages in the room. Pray that the Lord would protect them. Pray that the evil one would be kept far away, that we would be kept far from temptation. Pray for the single folks in the room. For you married folks, you might not know this, but our culture doesn't do a very good job defining single people. We don't know what to do with them. And our culture, sadly, even sometimes the church, kind of treats them as like half people or broken people, which is amazingly complicated because Paul's single and Jesus was single. And those pretty good guys right there. Instead, I would encourage you to spend a portion of your your prayer time every week praying for those that God has called to be single in this church. And I'll tell you what Tom and I pray every Friday. I pray the same thing every Friday. That the Lord would equip our single people to be single until, if or until he changes them to a different state. Because your singleness is a gift. God's given it to you. I pray that you would use it well. Now, if he calls you to be married, great. I'll pray for that too. But please do not listen to the world to think that your singleness is broken. 
pray, pray, pray. And then lastly, the challenge with talking about all of these things is that it's connected so deeply to our soul that it hurts to discuss any of this. I mean, the people that hurt the most, I mean, Spurgeon has a famous line for this. He said, little hurts are really loud, big hurts are really quiet. Right? If I stub my toe, man, everybody's going to hear about it. That deep-seated, soul-crushing pain that some of us carry, you're never going to hear about that. Uh, marriage things, relational things, and family things most often touch down at that deep, soul-crushing sort of level. It, it, you really have to be very intentional about getting that out. And not letting the bitterness and the hate and the rage stew on the inside. That instead, we might see the cross of Christ worked out through our sermon in shoes every week by God's mercy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Even when we don't want to hear it, it's good. And when we don't want to hear it, it most often means we need to hear it. Forgive us for our sins. Lord, we ask, I'm just straight up, say what we've said. Would you please forgive us for our divorce? Would you please forgive us for our adultery? Would you please forgive us for our idolatry? Would you please forgive us for our self-centeredness that punishes our spouse for our own miserable condition? Would you please forgive us for all of these evils and even the evils we are unwilling to name? Not because we deserve forgiveness, for you know we do not. But would you please forgive us for the sake of Jesus? And Lord, we pray for those that carry great shame and we ask that you would cleanse them, not just from the power of sin, but the shame of sin. For we know that Jesus took shame to the cross with him. Encourage those dear saints, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.